Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 120, Roaring. The centerpiece of American influence during the interwar years was always going to be its economic might. Out of all the topics I've touched on these past few weeks, their importance for our purposes lies in how they influenced American leaders on how they utilized that might. And thanks to the convulsions of Wilson's second term, those leaders recoiled from enforcing any major vision to make use of their own abundance. The most forward-thinking move had been Harding's receptiveness towards implementing the Washington Naval Treaties. But in terms of using America's affluence to induce the major powers of the world to come to the table and hash out a more general and long-lasting agreement towards peace, that just seemed too big a reach. Wilson's political destruction stood as a vindication to the string of conservative presidents who served in his wake. To them, nothing good came from managing the economy from Washington. Instead, in the aftermath of the 1920-21 recession, the guiding principle moving forward would be business for the sake of business. Barriers and oversight coming from the federal government would be relaxed, taxes were set to be slashed, and the private firms were to be ran as their management saw fit. After all, they were the professional businessmen. Surely they knew best. Surely. The purpose of government was to facilitate conditions that would allow commerce to expand, which typically that meant the aforementioned reduction in regulations and taxes, plus management of the money supplied to ensure a healthy credit market that businesses could take out loans from. It was borderline mindless in its ambition, but the mentality was exactly what America had been clamoring for early in the decade. Broadly speaking, the pro-business policies of the American government would create an economic explosion that would put to shame the nation's previous level of abundance, and the 1920s would come to be known as the Roaring Twenties as a result. There would be more money, more investment opportunities, and more goods available than ever before. If you've been listening to this podcast and thinking that pretty much every nation had a miserable time during the 1920s, and that seems at odds with the message of prosperity that you might have been taught about in school, well, this is the part where that bit of historiography comes from. Because, make no mistake, for a solid chunk of the decade, many in America saw their material circumstances get lifted, and it was a boom time in every sense of the word. The problem comes from the fact that hardly anyone gave a thought to actually managing that boom time, or once it was in full swing, where its excesses might take the United States and the rest of the world. Because much of the expansion was based on classic speculation, the idea being that if you followed economic trends, you could reasonably guess how the market would act in the future. That works out all right as long as the status quo prevails, but unravels when conditions quickly change. Like, say, if it turns out that industrial production, that it had money invested into it for years, had grown to such a point that it was producing more than could be consumed by actual buyers. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's spend this week covering the economic mountain that was climbed in these years. We can save the fall from that mountain for next week's episode. The ascension of Calvin Coolidge to the presidency following the death of Harding seemed to outwardly change very little. But Harding was, if nothing else, a man who was eager to please, and was cognizant that there were many in America who didn't agree with his small government vision. And ever the unifier, he held in check some of the colder impulses of his conservative staff like Andrew Mellon. 
Coolidge, on the other hand, was a true believer in the power of small and inert government. He immediately set to work slashing the federal budget at every level. Uh, the Navy's budget got reduced 20%, and suddenly that branch wasn't able to actually build to the level that their still recent naval treaty allowed them to. When the Army and Navy got into a tussle over budgeting airplanes, Coolidge humorously suggested they buy a set of planes sufficient for one of them and simply take turns in their use. He vetoed legislation that would provide relief to the nation's farmers, who you'll remember would never get a Roaring Twenties of their own, and whose lot simply went from bad to worse after 1929. He directly advised the nation's farmers to simply stop growing so much foods that prices would go up, which would solve their problems. The fact that such a level of organization would require state intervention was probably lost on him and farmers continued living on the edge, all the while the consumers of their crops enjoyed both abundance and low prices. His spending policies extended down to his own living in the White House as he hounded the staff to reduce expenses, which isn't important for how much money it actually saved, but rather the fact that it created a public perception of frugality that was appreciated. The country loved his persona of a humble and incorruptible public servant, which was good for him because Harding's scandal started breaking out into the public during his first few months in office. So the persona was kind of necessary to disassociate himself. One might say that he took the austerity too far into his personality. He was famously boring, the most exciting part of his day being his near-daily breakfast of pancakes covered in syrup from his native Vermont. Unlike Harding, he didn't drink in the White House, as while he disapproved of prohibition, he honored the law, and he was just in general terrible to hang out with. He barely spoke to the press, or even the public, and was noted to having slept more than any other president while in office. Government should do as little as possible in his eyes, and he lived by his own wisdom. Okay, so we have a president who was a bore and didn't really want to do anything. And power is kind of a zero-sum game, so if you don't use it, then it can be diverted to someone else's purpose. And that brings us to the Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. Mellon and Coolidge saw eye-to-eye -eye on much concerning the economy, especially with regards to taxes. Mellon had already secured a tax cut during Harding's administration, but he wanted more. And Coolidge wanted to give it to him. Each came to their own conclusions coming from different places. Mellon was the classic economic liberal where low taxes encouraged investment, which would boost revenue in the long run as the economy got bigger. Coolidge, though, favored low taxes because it gave less for the government to play with. Full stop. Nothing else. That's the reason. This difference was noted by both, but didn't get in the way of what proved to be a solid working relationship. Which made sense. Both men were cold fish with limited patience for social niceties. They just complemented each other well. Coolidge provided the incorruptible and humble image, which provided cover for Mellon's brazenly pro-business policies. They would need to act in concert to achieve their shared goal, as problems mounted immediately for them. Harding had died in August 1923, and by December 6th, Coolidge had publicly committed to slashing taxes in the name of boosting the economy. That was also the time the Harding scandal started going public, which sapped congressional attention as investigations started to be organized. Coolidge's own defense of Attorney General Doherty didn't help his position either, as that guy was corrupt as all hell. Coolidge's defense likely sprang from the fact that the other Republican officials were pressuring him to fire the man, but Coolidge didn't want to relent to outside ultimatums so soon in office. 
that wouldn't last forever, and by April, Doherty was gone, but that was precious months wasted standing by a lame duck. The other source of early trouble for Coolidge was the Veterans Bonus Bill. The bill was straightforward. It would provide payouts to veterans of World War I based on the length of their service. What wasn't straightforward was resistance from the White House. Harding himself had been against the idea over what it might do to the federal budget, and Coolidge was doubly against providing additional payouts. He was, after all, trying to propose a tax cut that Mellon had meticulously calculated would still leave a balanced budget. The bill wasn't included in those calculations, and the pair fought against it tooth and nail. This was an age, too, where a balanced-ish budget was still sought after, and the excessive spending of World War I was still fresh in everyone's minds. Despite that executive opposition, up to and including Coolidge's own veto, Congress passed the bill on May 19, 1924. It was a body blow to Coolidge as the vast majority of both houses across both parties supported the measure, including supposed allies like Senate Majority Leader Lodge. And by that time, the presidential election was looming, and Coolidge had already committed to running for the nomination. So there wasn't a lot of time to secure his pet legislation. In the end, a compromise had to be made to secure enough progressive Democrats supported the tax measure. Taxes would mostly be cut among those who earned less, with the cuts for the wealthy being far less than Mellon had called for. Meanwhile, estate taxes would actually be increased. Coolidge went into a rage over the legislation and felt that Congress was railroading him as a power play, which, given how often he and Senator Lodge had gotten into it since Coolidge had come to Washington, might actually have been true. Coolidge signed the tax bill into law in June 1924, but immediately threw down a new gauntlet. What he was signing was only going to be a temporary measure, he said, and his top priority in a second term was going to be tax cuts, the likes of which nobody had ever seen before. It really was a sign how fixated Coolidge was on reducing the size of government that he gave the topic so much of his attention. Because honestly, the economic boom times were already underway before the tax changes. The spending slash was a philosophical move, not one of necessity. Under Harding, the deflation disaster of 1920-21 had been reversed, and money was again flowing into the economy. If you weren't a farmer, times were looking good. And while the devastation in Europe wasn't as bad as, say, in 1945, it was still a continent of consumers whose own domestic industries couldn't yet handle their internal demands in the aftermath of the war. In just three years, the economy had expanded 9% in the United States. Prices had actually decreased, and unemployment went from almost 12% to 5 And as the base of consumers and their paychecks expanded, so did the array of goods they had available to purchase. 20s America put Europe, its next closest point of comparison, to shame in terms of what could be feasibly purchased by normal people. The symbol of the age in the minds of many it was the Ford Motor Company and its stalwart Model T, a marvel of industrial simplicity. That image is not entirely accurate, as Henry Ford had actually introduced the Model T way back in 1908 and had worked out his famous assembly line approach to manufacturing in 1910. By the start of the 20s, the car had actually taken the nation by storm already, with millions of vehicles being sold at affordable prices thanks to his innovations in speedy manufacturing. The 20s were important, though, because his rivals in the automobile industry didn't waste time catching up to him. Companies like Packard, Chrysler, and General Motors all clustered in Detroit along with Ford, and they weren't shy about borrowing his approach. 
and they added creature comforts and quality of life improvements into their mass-produced cars as well, delivering a pleasant experience at a price point competitive with Ford. This, in turn, finally led Ford at the end of 1927 to, to introduce its Model A, which, while also a hit, wasn't the phenomenon of its predecessor. And in terms of market share, no single car would be again. What I'm getting at here is that America didn't just motorize, it also created a cutthroat competition to deliver a superior product in the hands of the maximum number of people. This was mirrored in the truck and tractor markets as well. The abundance of motorization also meant that the average American was exposed to vehicles and much of the population picked up technical skills that went along with it, which was a big plus in a hypothetical future war where the ability to put an army on wheels could decide battles. It also meant that the United States became capable of delivering flabbergasting numbers of vehicles to market compared to its foreign competitors. By the end of October 1925, for example, Ford could churn out over 9,000 Model Ts a day. And the automobile is a special product in that it created an entirely new economy. Cars demanded more extensive roads, preferably fully paved ones, so there's already one source of public investment that encouraged commerce. Then there was the maintenance of the car itself, the core ingredient of which was fuel and oil, which demanded more petroleum which back in those days was still an easy reach in abundance in America, so another domestic industry, already doing well for itself, was only doing better. All the parts had to come from somewhere as well. Tires and other items here and there had to be replaced. Then there were the indirect beneficiaries of the car boom. People could now drive places. Where would they drive to? They would go on trips, see sights, and in doing so, would have to eat and stay at places. The layout of cities evolved to accommodate cars, and future communities were built with an automobile in mind. The expansion of the American suburb first got underway during this time, as people suddenly could cover much longer distances to go to work or just, you know, the store. And speaking of the store, the nature of commerce changed as well with mass production. Massive firms like General Electric and Westinghouse delivered unrivaled infrastructure when it came to delivering electricity into people's homes, which in turn paved the way for all manner of home appliances to become common. Vacuum cleaners, fridges, radios, even the humble toaster, everything suddenly was usable to the modern homeowner. And thanks to the mass manufacturing techniques begun in the automobile industry, all these products also began to be built at prices that put them within reach of the average consumer. And if a car or appliance was just slightly out of that reach, maybe? Well, the companies began to offer payment plans, effectively becoming financial institutions in their own right, offering credit to their consumers. An innovation familiar to all of us, but revolutionary at the time in terms of moving those products. And stores themselves changed to handle the volume now being demanded. There were suddenly a lot more consumers out there, and they were no longer expecting to pay top dollar for what they purchased. The size of stores expanded, resembling the department stores later taken to dystopian extremes a generation or two later. These stores purchased goods from companies wishing to wring every cent out of their own manufacturers, and so the stores themselves were forced to play a delicate game of margins where solvency depended on selling cheap goods in as high a number as humanly possible. And that meant getting the word out that particular goods were especially desirable, which meant advertising. 
The ad industry exploded as companies suddenly had just so many more things to sell, and the nature of the field changed along with the boom. You couldn't just tout your product as reliable and high-performing. Thanks to the miracle of mass production, everybody could deliver a quality product. Agencies were called upon to glamour up what they were selling, to make it sexy. Which is easy for something like cars, where new models always seem to be on the cutting edge of modernity, but try making a refrigerator sexy. And the 20s were also a time where people with a little spare income could really take care of themselves. Clothes, makeup, personal hygiene products all became way cheaper, and the youth of the generation created a striking comparison to the stodgy and, frankly, a little homely generations that came before. And advertising agencies used that image of modernity to sell, sell, sell. Before the start of the decade, $2 billion was spent annually on advertising alone, and by the economic peak, it had doubled. And much of the money made from advertisement and honestly, most of the money made from pretty much everywhere else, flowed into the big cities. All that cash spurned a boom in skyscraper building, which was most pronounced in the New York skyline, but was mirrored on a smaller scale in every major American metropolis. The construction boom in both the suburbs and city centers created new demands for construction materials, as well as millions of hands to actually put everything together. And once those new skyscrapers were built... Tens of thousands of office workers, both men and women, were needed to fill the desks for all the new jobs these rapidly expanding companies created. Success fed into success, seemingly creating a feedback loop that had nowhere to go but up. It was all distinctly American as it demanded both space and easy access to cheap resources to justify all these changes, and the United States had both in abundance. Of course, you all know it wasn't sustainable and that it all came to an end. And next week, you'll get the play-by-play -play of how it happened. But this week, I'll paint you the broad strokes of why the foundation of this economy might not have been so stable and why all that glittered might not have actually been gold. A big problem was real wages. Inflation was certainly tamed, but the damage was done through its effects on purchasing power. By the middle of the 1910s, Henry Ford introduced a minimum wage of $5 an hour for his workers, which at the time was amazing, like sustainable household amazing. Inflation bit into that so much that when he bumped it to six in 1919, his competitors were already offering even higher wages. What had been amazing in just half a decade turned into below the norm. And don't get me started on American farmers. Well, I mean, you can't stop me, so here it goes. The American farm was already, on average, among the largest and most productive in the world before the 20s, and with the expansion of mechanization, only became more so. But as I've already mentioned, these bumper crops only drove down food prices, reducing rural incomes in an age that already suffered inflation. Aside from investing in tractors and trucks, much of the advancements of the decade passed the average farmer by. Some adapted to changing times, and by adapted, I mean they gobbled up their lesser neighbors who went bust and expanded their own operations with modern equipment. But for most, it was a decade of uncertainty and decline, which, yes, would be followed by another decade of total disaster. But while the farmer was still a significant segment of the population, they weren't the overwhelming one anymore, and a conservative government obsessed with shrinking itself was hardly going to go out of its way to help them out. Okay, so the farmers of America didn't get to participate in the new consumption boom. How did average urban Americans, of whom the majority were still working class, 
afford all these new products. Because despite all the price drops, there was an overwhelming number of items to buy for the home, and keeping up with the Joneses added up. The answer was credit, and lots of it. Those payment plans I mentioned became ubiquitous, and effectively a shell game, as companies moved money and debt around, always striving to keep consumers engaged with their products and on the hook. Trading in your automobile for a newer model became a normal practice, and created the used car industry as a byproduct. The problem became success breeding too much success. Consumption went through the roof, again spurned by credit, but businessmen and investors focused on how much people were buying and less on what they were buying things with. Demand increased, and they thought it would continue in that direction forever. Orders were placed to expand operations so as to make more goods to meet that projected future demand. Unfortunately, by the end of the decade, the base of consumers had been tapped out. Everybody who could be catered to was in fact already being catered to. Even with easy credit, people had simply bought all they could. To mockingly paraphrase Margaret Thatcher, the capitalists had not only run out of other people's money, but they were about to run out of their own as well. It would take time for economic gravity to reassert itself, but we still have next week. Another quick aside I want to mention was the change in how America consumed food. The farmers were producing more than ever, and thanks to the mechanization of home appliances, it became easier than ever to prepare it. But something was lost in the transition that spoke to the soullessness of American consumption. Meals became standardized, from ingredients to recipes to what kind of meals were being prepared in general. It got a lot more boring. Breakfasts became toast and eggs, lunches became sandwiches, and dinners were meat and potatoes. You could toss a few fruits or veggies in there, but standardization reigned. Cultural flourishes were lost. Complicated meals were saved only for special occasions. Even meals with sauces or flavoring were oftentimes reduced to their canned facsimiles. I don't want to talk too much trash on this trend because the low-cost food was still a far cry from the overly processed nightmare fuel many Americans are stuck with today, and it delivered full bellies and proper nutrition. Not perfect nutrition, but a damn sight better than the rest of the world. It's just that the trend of the age favored more numerous, bigger meals over their Michelin rating. And switching gears back to politics, Coolidge might have been initially frustrated at not getting his way on taxes, but the economic boom effectively secured his political prospects going into the second half of 1924. And if the economy didn't all but guarantee his second term in office, then the total meltdown of the Democratic Party did. Coolidge getting the Republican nomination was an unopposed decision. The only notable bit of business was that Charles Dawes, who had engineered the plan that bailed out Germany and saved it from the spiral of hyperinflation, was rewarded for his efforts with the vice presidential nomination. So yeah, the Republican side, very boring. The Democrats, though? Their 1924 presidential convention was one for the ages. If you ever wonder why modern political parties are paranoid about controlling the nomination process for president, this is a good example of why they might be paranoid. It opened on June 24, 1924, and ran until July 9th. The venue was Madison Square Garden in New York, the site of a, many a memorable prize fight. This was actually the second garden, and the building would be torn down just a year after the convention. The Democratic Party of 1924 was still split in two, just as it had been four years prior between the Northern immigrants and the Solid South. 
In fact, those divisions had just gotten a whole lot worse as that solid South had been hijacked after the disasters of the final Wilson years by the Ku Klux Klan. Bigots who did not take highly to those northern immigrants. They were all packed in together in the garden at the height of a New York summer, and tensions flared immediately. William McAdoo was a Georgian progressive and the Treasury Secretary under Wilson. He tended towards being understated and well-spoken. He also championed the South, and the Klansmen at the convention had his back. His rival, Al Smith, was from New York. He came from Irish and Italian stock, was Catholic, and enjoyed his cigars and liquor. The Southerners hated him. The convention opened with the Northerners presenting a call for the party to make condemnation of the Klan part of their platform. It was a gutsy power move and designed to force the hand of the Southern Democrats. It turned into a screaming match between the two masses of delegates, though, which was not helped when the House band started playing a marching song about Sherman's march through the South. A group of Texans responded by trying to set up a cross to be burned on the convention floor. This was all day one. The condemnation measure failed by one vote, and the cops had to come in to break the near riot up. The only bright spot was the surprise appearance by FDR, who was still recovering from his paralyzing bout with polio and had to be supported by his son to the podium. He formally nominated Al Smith, his fellow New Yorker, and despite differences within the party, the speech he made about unity was well-received by everyone who heard it. Too bad people were more enthusiastic about him delivering the speech than the contents of it, because the Dems went right back to infighting. Neither candidate could get the necessary votes to end the convention. Will Rogers, the popular satirist, commented that they had been invited to a convention, but not to live there. The heat and humidity brought out the foul smell of the circus animals that had been the garden's previous attraction as well, so it just stunk to high heaven. The papers and radio news programs were enthralled by the live immolation of a major political party, and the public grew disgusted with the Democrats in general. It took 103 rounds of floor votes, but in the end, neither of the leading candidates got the nomination, and the party compromised on John W. Davis, a governor of West Virginia. The result really, really didn't matter. By the end of the convention, the election was practically over, and everybody knew it. When the time for voting actually came in November, turnout was only modestly better than in 1920 and still a far cry from the 1916 election. The country had sensed another foregone conclusion. In addition to retaining the presidency handily, the Republicans also made large gains again in both houses of Congress. So much so that even the members of that party who bucked Coolidge's frugal sensibilities could be safely ignored. This is also where American politics would get tremendously boring for years on end. Coolidge and Mellon would get their biggest tax cut yet in early 1926, which helped put even more money into the economy. A little bit for consumers to buy more goods, and a lot more for the upper crust to invest into a market that was already overextended. They justified it by pointing out that revenue would actually increase thanks to higher rates of consumption, which was entirely true, but also ignored the possibility that at some point, those increases would level out or even reverse. Always remember, under capitalism, rapid growth in turn relies on ever faster growth thereafter as the market normalizes higher returns. But as always, it would take a crisis to demonstrate how easily that could go wrong. And the coming crisis would only occur at the very tail end of Coolidge's watch. In the meantime, the president had gotten virtually everything he had wanted. The government budget was cut to the bone so deeply 
that even Coolidge couldn't cut it anymore. Taxes were low enough to satisfy both Mellon and himself, so American politics kind of fell into a holding pattern, benignly collecting the bare minimum of revenue and doing as little as possible. Even the gigantic flood that virtually wiped out the Mississippi Delta in 1927 couldn't rouse Coolidge into action. He declined to spare any special funds or provide federal resources, instead sending in Herbert Hoover to once again manage a relief mission funded on the private side. As per usual, Hoover did this as efficiently and ably as could be expected, but the damage was such that many living in the area, especially African Americans, decided to leave and seek a new life elsewhere. Indeed, the shoddy treatment of African Americans on the part of the government during this incident provided encouragement that if a non-bigot came to the head of the Democrats, then they would be open to providing their support. In the meantime, Hoover again became a national hero and the likely successor to Coolidge. Because while he might have been eligible to run again, Coolidge was uninterested in another term. Which was just as well because it wasn't like he was doing a whole lot with it. And his early decision not to run again opened the floodgates to feelings that had been suppressed until those closing days. Congress immediately began to assert itself again, calling for increased funding for items like naval expansion and rebuilding the flooded South. And his stodgy frugality, which had once been his greatest strength, was seen as out of touch in the more spendthrift America he had helped create. Hoover successfully slid into the role as the new face of conservatism. He was certainly no fan of big government, but he publicly recognized the good federal power could do if managed properly. He benefited from just how far Coolidge went in limiting the government that his own modest outlook seemed like a breath of fresh air. But he in turn also benefited enormously from the Coolidge administration as America was not yet ready to turn from the party that had delivered so much economically. Coolidge himself was annoyed at Hoover publicly promising to dial back the policies he had worked so hard to implement and return the government into the lives of the people. But he stuck to his decision to leave politics, which in the long run was absolutely the correct decision for him. Because while few could guess it at the time, Hoover was going to go from being an all-star public servant to one of history's great fall guys in record time. Next week, we conclude this mini-series on the United States and finally cover the Great Crash of 1929. The era of greatest hope for peace after World War I would be brought to an unceremonious, agonizing end as the centerpiece of the global economy began its years-long meltdown. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music